Joshua 24, 14 through 24. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites, who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joseph said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that, you are, or, that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord, our God, and obey him. The word of the Lord. When the foundations are being destroyed, what shall the righteous do? Is what Psalm 11 proclaimed for us this morning. And it's a question that I think drives a lot of what I think about when I think about Defiance Church and who we are and how we are to be in the world. Is that in an age that seems very um, chaotic, when things are being destroyed, when things are being thrown off, what shall the people of God do? And in that psalm, the, the, the option is to flee or to remain in God's presence. We talk about fight or flight today, um, but, but this is more uh, uh, flee or remain in trust and the fidelity of the one whom you have perception in that things will um, be set in that one's direction and hope someday. Today's sermon... Um, I'm actually using a timer today because I don't want to go too long on what's an odd, odd topic. Um, but what we've been doing for Easter season is, is sort of walking through what does it mean to be made up as Defiance Church in these ways. And so we started with the, with the first week just looking at what our Constitution just says is our simple mission statement. The mission of Defiance Church is to be a witness to the reign of the triune God, reconciling all things to himself. 
And then we moved to sort of um, the theological virtues that I, that I argue sort of make a triple helix. And the, the five things that we're talking about after that sort of remain in this triple helix. They're not something outside of it. Um, I don't know. Joey's not here. He would know more about DNA than I do, or anyone would know more about DNA than I do. But the idea is that as the helix, there are things that make up the smaller parts of it. This is stuff that makes up the smaller parts of it. So the one thing is our church and what we aim to be in our witness to the God whose reconciling work is, is driving the world. The three things are faith, hope, and love, and they're kind of the paths that we walk. We've talked about those as sort of as faith helping us um, trust in the present because God has been faithful to us in our past. Um, hope uh, allowing us to sort of envision, and this is where the psalmist sort of stance comes from today, envision a world that is beyond ours in which things are set to right. This ties into the reconciliation of all things. And then the present love is sort of what drives us. And so we did faith, hope, and love. And then we've sort of been using this um, bizarre uh, if you grew up in the 90s like I did, it looks like a fake NCAA tournament bracket. And you'd have either Duke or North Carolina going all the way if you tilted it this way. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, blessings on you and your family. There's one mission. Um, there's these three sort of things, faith, hope, and love, and those are the theological virtues that make it up. And then underneath that, we have these five things. And so the first week we talked about word. Um, and the psalm with this one was Psalm 119, that the, that the word, well, there's plenty of references. You pick any of them. But the one we used was that the word is a lamp unto our path. It illuminates. One of the things I don't think I made clear enough in that sermon, um, because I didn't use a timer, was that uh, we read scripture to meet God. I mean, I tried to, to take, sometimes I push too hard on things um, perhaps on the right side of the spectrum or evangelical side of the spectrum that I think don't help us. But on the other side, I think it's, it's clear to say that like, this is the place where we can go to meet God. When we open up our Bibles in the morning or in a church together, we hear a word that confronts us, that brings us into another world, that resolves in us. And so one of my hopes for this series is maybe as we get to the end, I'll actually get to this. If not, maybe I'll make a worksheet, was to be able to bring these into our daily lives. So one of the most radical things that I think most people think you could do is before you wake, get out, before you check any sort of social media or news source in the morning or even your email, to take a moment to read a psalm, piece of the Gospels, and pray. You can do that in five minutes, great. You can do it in 15, even better. If you have an hour to spend like that, I know you don't have small kids or you get up way too early and I will never meet you there. Um, but having this time to sort of be in that spot, to hear from another world and place before you go into your day. Um, and, and as this is based in the Psalms, I think the Psalms are a great place to start with that. When we did the Psalms of Ascent a couple years ago, or a year ago, we talked about sort of having those Psalms, picking a Psalm for each day of the week even, so that when you wake up, you go this one, this one, this one, and there are, there are sort of um, genres in the Psalms. So if you pick all happy ones, you probably don't go to Defiance Church or you really dislike me, um, but uh, you pick one of confession, you pick one of... of of joy, you pick one of, of naming the history, the tradition ones, and, and you use those throughout the week to sort of bring you back into that place. 
the the second week, uh, the second one of these we did was on confession, um, and this one was sort of on languaging God for our world. Is that how we get this language to talk about what it is that we do, and that we confess that in multiple ways, whether it be in the creed, whether it be in our prayer of confession, whether it be in our prayers, whether it be in our songs, um, that we sort of confess and reverberate back to God. And, that, and I didn't work it out this way necessarily from the start, but the first one comes very external to us. The word is not in us, but on the outside of us, and it comes to us. It is near to us. We don't have to search for it, but it's something God has provided to point the way. The second one is almost like our response back. That we're invited into praise, into confession, and prayer because of what happens there. And we use Psalm 51 to sort of walk through this because I think in, in its ability not to name David's sin and its text, it names the truth. Uh, this is what I think comes from confession that I think is helpful, which we'll tie into today. It names about the truth about who we are and where we are, Psalm 51. That we've, we have sin ever before us, that we have these choices to tear down ever before us, that, that we've been um, caught in these ways. And yet God, in his wisdom, one of those passages that you can skip over in that psalm real fast, is that has been teaching us wisdom since the innermost secret places, and for us to fall and go into that wisdom. Um, and, and that psalm moves into this, create in us a new heart. And in that I, we language device, I talked about last Sunday, that when the church speaks as I, it speaks actually for all of us. That's why we say the creed in a singular. And when we say we, we speak as most of us believe this, some of us believe this. It's an odd thing Matt says sometimes. Um, I wouldn't use we for that, I guess. But you get the point, um, that, that I is the singular. And so when we say, create in me a new heart, we're asking that this church and this place become this created again a new humanity that is sustained and brought about by God's spirit. That that is, um, and that's sort of what the psalmist prays is to be brought into that. And because he knows, or she knows, the psalmist knows, the prayer knows, how they've been wronged, how sin is ever before them, and they're able to confess that and ask for this new being and sustain in the spirit, they go forth being able to teach that. There's a lot in there that goes into mission and sharing our faith from that and instruction. Um, and then this new people that's being renewed at the end, that was Psalm 51 for confession. Um, today we have uh, tradition, which is not the sexiest of words. Um, uh, and it was one that when the leadership table were doing this, I think I got three out of five votes or three out of four. Um, we, got, we got good votes on this, but it's one I think that speaks to who we are. Now, Stanley Harawas, who's one of my favorite theologians, said in a famous essay that preaching needs enemies. Every sort of sermon needs something that it targets um, to sort of talk about. And so today, the target, unfortunately, is, is Anthony Kennedy, former Supreme Court Justice. Um, uh, he said this in one of the most famous opinions he wrote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning of the universe, and the mystery of human life. Uh, that was Kennedy writing, I think, in the early 90s, at the heart of liberty. And if you were to change this, that the heart of freedom is the right to define one's own concept of meaning of the universe and the mystery of human life. Um, we've talked about this quote before. My first response is, who has the time? You wake up in the morning and you're going to define the concept of existence, the meaning of the universe, and the mystery of human life. Um, 
there was a joke after I did the Faith, Hope, and Love sermons that was uh, on a weird Twitter account that was Faith, Hope, and Love in this economy. Um, defining all this by myself really doesn't seem that possible. And Ephraim Radner, um, a different theologian, has this idea that in the modern world, we're sort of forced to choose. No matter how traditional or Christian you might think you are, you become this sort of autonomous chooser and stuff like that. And he points out one of the best ways to sort of solve that problem of choosing is to at least choose backwards. We all choose forwards. We all choose new technology, new this, new religions, new thoughts on the concept of existence of the universe and the mystery of human on life rather than looking backwards. And the challenge with that, I think, um, with Kennedy's statement here is not only who has the time or um, if you're self-aware to some degree, who am I to do that, which is another big challenge. And, and to be clear, I'm not saying that anybody should have their right to do this overwritten. What I'm saying is it's a bizarre thing for Christians to accept, and this is, but this is part of our world, is that we think we, have, we should have the right to do these things, and that those things should be thought of as great as anything else. There's, a, there's an English comedy skit with an evil vicar where the people walk into the church and they're like, isn't it great to be in this peace, place of peace and love? And he's like, that's a new idea. I don't think that's going to catch on. Um, and she says, well, we're spiritual but not religious. And he goes, spiritual not religious. Are you testing me, Satan? Um, and he ends up running them out of there because he can't handle that they're, uh, he said, oh, you looked up your internet philosophy and you've come to share it with me. I stand with 2,000 years of darkness and tradition in this, and he, he runs them out of the, I'll put it in the email, although it's a little crass. There's, it's, a, it's a great sort of way of, of saying that, like, what's different about the church? Like, we don't come together and share our own sort of um, thoughts and this, that, on what we think are the right answers to all these questions. But, and this is the biggest point I would like to make about tradition, is we receive them. That Christianity is a received thing, not something we invented. And so what I wanted to start with, and I didn't, is that this sermon is hard because there are two things that I'm going to try and do. One is to talk about tradition the way we talked about last week, is that talks have action or attitude or atmosphere. And one of the things that I'm aiming in most of my sermons is to create an atmosphere in Defiance Church. And it's an atmosphere that takes that we are traditioned people and that we receive the faith seriously. And what does that mean for us in light of the challenges of, let's say, Psalm 11? When the foundations are crumbling, what shall the righteous do? The second thing is, I have to somewhat exegete this from the Bible, which is um, hard because the Bible is a traditioned document. And so it doesn't write a lot about tradition because it assumes tradition. That's how you got this book um, is in some sense the answer to it. Because every good sermon needs a proof text. Um, one person laughed. Um, here are some. Um, I praise you for remembering everything and holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. That's Paul in 1 Corinthians. There's the one in the bulletin for today, the big print one. Um, in the middle, uh, I just want to get it right. Um, for I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you. That's Paul talking about communion. I received this tradition from the Lord. And it's interesting because Paul has met Jesus in his risen form, but not in his lived form. And so what he says is, even receiving these in the way that I received them is I received them from the Lord and I passed them on to you. That is tradition language. For I was delivered, for I delivered to you 
uh, of first importance and what I always reserve, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. Um, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I received. Paul is talking as a person who's entered into a tradition and in our minds is the person basically inventing it, which is, which is how quickly this language takes on in Christianity as he's talking about, I've received these things and he's a first century believer who's also writing the thing we've received the most, which is the Bible. Um, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That was um, from what Michaela read during the sermon, is that this is a trustworthy saying. is something you would say that's like worn wisdom um, or something that's been in your tradition. Um, but for you, and this is about the scripture one, continue um, from what you've learned in your infancy from the holy scriptures um, and... Uh, which are able to make th salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, that you've been brought into this thing since you were young. You can imagine these things as sort of traditioned things. So those are two of the scripture readings. The one Carla read for us from Joshua. I like because the people are standing at the edge of the promised land after having gone through all the things that they've gone through, and God doesn't say, and behold, you're going to go and do a new grand thing, but will you take on what your forefathers and foremothers undertook in themselves and go into the story that has been written before you were here? So in that same essay where Harawas says that preaching needs enemies, he says the modern world is obsessed, and I, I won't get this quote exactly right, with the idea is that you, you have no story except for the story you had when you had no story that you chose. That we sort of choose our own stories. So Harawas's first name is Stanley, um, and his mom was going to name him Samuel uh, because she had prayed for a child for a long time and finally received one. Uh, but then they saw the movie Dr. Livingston, I presume, and changed his name to Stanley before his birth, which he always jokes uh, about being named after an imperial colonizer is not a great way to go about your life. Um, but, uh, but he says that, you know, if I had been named Samuel, people would say that God, because his mom had dedicated him to the Lord. He said that in, in true modern fashion, a lot of people would view that as a violation of my autonomy. That my parents had dedicated me to something before I was even born. We choose our stories. We choose our paths. We make our lives. And what Kennedy's quote sort of nails and, and enshrines into law, that was a majority opinion, is that that is who we are. But as Christians, we hold to the fact that we are receiving and brought into something that comes before us. To dedicate your children to the Lord, to have them baptized, to bring them to church. Um, there's a war in, in some areas of the country about whether Jews should be able to circumcise their children. Is to say that they are being brought into the story that God has told it's not that your children are being prepped to be autonomous choosers to choose correctly at the grocery store aisle or products on Amazon or this, that, and the other, but your kids are being trained and brought into a path of wisdom and tradition and being instructed in that way. And so we view anything that imposes on us from the outside as restrictive. But what Christianity, and we'll see this quote more next week, um, from G.K. Chesterton is that Christianity, he said, as he investigated it, is the more he looked at it, he saw that it, had published, uh, it established a rule and an order, and that rule and order was so that good things could run wild and free. That when we put up the, um, 
boundaries or fences or ways of relating in the world. They're actually there so that we can thrive and flourish, not to restrict us. And to hear that as good news, I'm not going to lie, is a challenge. There's a, I skipped forward a couple um, quotes. This one was from David Foster Wallace, but I just want to get, I'm not going to read the whole thing about um, when he was writing in the 90s, uh, literature had taken on sort of this false sincerity and false sort of like ironic, like <laughs> basically how the modern world basically goes, I guess. Irony, ironic, the onion, the Babylon Bee, gestures that all mean nothing and don't change anything. We're governed now by gotcha politics, which is like, oh, got you, you didn't do this. Um, this is a terrible thing with the crisis at the border. Like, oh, now they have a crisis at the border. Boy, we got them. And it's like, it's a humanitarian issue. It was a humanitarian issue the first time. It's a humanitarian issue the second time. Gotcha politics is not wise. Um, let's establish. And so Foster uh, Wallace is writing, um, and the phrase that I highlighted was one that I thought of when we picked tradition was, these anti-rebels would be outdated, of course, before they started. And I used to tell that to people about Defiance Churches. Our goal is to be outdated before we even make it far down the path. That as we live in a, in a world of continually choosing and making our own lives and this, that, and the other, we choose backwards. And our goal is to be outdated before we get uh, even started. Um, and so these people, and, and essentially what he's saying here, and I can link to this, is we'll risk sincerity. They'll risk the rolled eyes. We talked about this on Easter in relation to the movie About a Boy. They'll risk singing with their eyes closed in sincerity to what God has done. These are people who will, who will be willing to look at, be looked at as strange because they care and they're authentic and they're driven into these places. These are, this is what he's talking about here. And so I liked that quote. I thought it was worth sharing today um, and I can send it out to you if you're interested. The, as we talk about tradition, I'm trying to do this fast, um, the one thing I wanted to bring up the last time we talked about our living history was this beautiful book, Martyrs Mirrors. Um, it's a collection of stories from people who died for their faith. It was written by, um, I won't even attempt to say his name, Brat, um, in uh, Denmark, I think. Uh, and it was at a time when Anabaptist Christians had stopped being persecuted and had forgotten what it was like to live the faith in tension. So he wrote a giant book about all the bad stories that could happen to you because of your faith, which is a great way to, to write a book. But not only that, now it's largely given if you buy a house or are married in, in many Anabaptist traditions, they give you this book, which I think is, one, it's not small. Um, it's like, here's, here's a book. It will take up lots of room on the shelf for the rest of your life. Two, it's about people who are martyred, which is not exactly... I mean, that's a marriage sermon I might give, but it's not one anybody would ever invite you to give again. Um, uh, some people got that one. Uh, do you, and, and this is just my one joke I prepared for today, which means I probably won't go. Does anybody know what a, a flex is? Like showing off? Like, like this is one of the best flexes of all times, is that this book, to be included in this book, you need to have preached and taught adult baptism, you need to have preached and taught pacifism, and you need to have died for the faith, which seems reasonable, and it's like, okay, so lots of Christians think that way, and we should do this. And the first person they start off with is Jesus Christ. 
which I just, I, I think that's so awesome. Is like, so the one who did that the most, our Lord and Savior. Um, so that's Martyr's Mirrors. But what, what I think that captures for us is both the way in which our living history is active here, by knowing what that book is, by having it, by, by seeing in, in Martyrs. And the Greek word that is often translated witness in the New Testament is the word that's also translated martyr. Um, and so in Defiance Church, when we say our goal is to be a witness to the reign of the triune God, in some sense we're implying almost base of our story. Our goal is to be a martyr for this sake, to die to it every day. This is Jesus' teaching about picking up your cross and following, that this is something you go through over and over and over again. For final observations, I think I have a couple. Um, The first is... This is the image. We've been using images, as you've seen, for this week. This image is the image of a well, according to the Noun Project, but I think you can see it um, uh, as the water is going into the well. And one of the things I think of when I think of tradition for our church is that to be a well tradition church is to look at the church as if it's a well, that we are pulling ourselves backwards. One of the early conversations I used to have with Christians in the Valley is what's going to be different about your church? Why do we need another church, this, that, and the other? And one of the things I used to say is lots of churches are community pools, and that's not a bad thing. But like people can go off in this end and do, um, I don't want to use any names, but an eccentric woman study. People can go off in this end and do um, uh, a Fox News coffee hour. People can go on this end and sort of just do the Bible but have the same conversation every time. And then the church is trying to hold all that together. And what I said is that for our church, it's not going to be for everyone, which is sad and a challenge, but in some sense to say that we are, are going to be a well, which is in comparison to a community pool, narrow. <laughs> um, but it has the benefit of being able to go to depth that has the benefit of being able to go further back. And so in a community pool, you have a deep end, you have a shallow end, you have all this. But as a people, and as a small people in the world, it's intentional to be pulled in one direction, to go into one sort of well, to go in sort of one place. And that well, of course, is the living springs that come up in Jesus Christ. But one of the ways we try to think about that is by orienting ourselves towards the past that we've been given by the history of the church and faith, to sort of look there before we look forward. is going back to Radner's observation. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis has this great quote about reading older books. Um, And what he says is is, is about, uh, we may be sure that the characteristic blindness of the 20th century uh, lies where we never suspected it and concerns something about which there is troubled uh, agreement um, between all these characters. None of us fully escape this blindness, but we shall certainly increase it and weaken our guard against it if we read only new books. Where they are true, they will give us truths which we already half knew. Where they are false, they will aggravate the air with which our minds are already dangerously ill. The only papillative is to keep the clean sea of centuries blowing through our minds, and this can only be done by reading old books. Not, of course, that there is any magic in the past. People were no cleverer than they are now. They made as many mistakes as we, but not the same mistakes. They will not flatter us in the errors we are already committing, and their own errors, being now open before us, will now not endanger us. Two heads are better than one, not because either one is infallible, but because they are unlikely to go wrong in the same direction. 
to be sure the books of the future would be just as good as corrective as the books of the past, but unfortunately we cannot get them. What he's arguing there is that we have the sense in which reading books from the past, actually we know where they're wrong. So interesting, we're reading a book by Flannery O'Connor coming back. And, and to summarize this sermon would be to say from her phrase, which she said about that book, you have to push back on the age as hard as it pushes against you. Um, but Flannery O'Connor, there's a discussion about was she um, properly oriented on race? And the answer is no. She's a woman from 1950s South, and she's a person of those circumstances in time. But in reading Flannery O'Connor, we already know she's wrong there. So the danger that will make that error is not before us. But the other errors, which she can correct us from because what we're fascinated by in the present she can warn us about better than our own era can, is what Lewis is saying. You're unlikely to commit the same errors of the person in the past as you are because you already know what they are. Um, if somebody were reading a book about somebody who thought um, the world was flat, we would understand that they were wrong about that, but they might have something to say about the human heart and condition living in proximity to neighbors that we don't with the internet. And so that's sort of this reason for um, focusing on the old. So tradition, um, my timer went off. Uh, so how far can I blow past it? This is classic. Um, I want to go to the psalm for one second. Uh, f well, to end. Let's just say to end. Um, don't let me go back, guys, okay? Um, there's one more observation, actually, before I go to the psalm. As we talked about this, uh, in, in three of these sermons, I think we've talked about uh, positive world Christianity, nutritive world Christianity, negative world Christianity, and the ways in which we relate into those spaces. And as we move to one, as I said, if I say in most churches, um, when the foundations are criminally, what shall the righteous do? Everybody nods. It seems like most of us are sort of aware that the foundations are crumbling. Um, people don't seem particularly optimistic at the moment. Um, uh, so what happens is in this post-Christian world is we actually go out and we're evangelized more than we do evangelism. And so this is sort of classic. There's two examples I could give for this. Um, one is if, if in the early sort of missional movement, people would say, hey, listen to some secular music and go to the pub and talk to people over a beer, and that would be your way of sort of being missional and being less Christianese and relating to the world. And what we actually found when the people came back is they actually became more like the people in the pub drinking the beer than they actually shared the faith at all. And what happens in, and Philip Reef has this uh, Jewish psychologist who's not a Christian, has this thing in that third cultures actually are inoculated against what became before them. So if we say post-Christian culture, what we mean is that a, we live in a, we, what we can be meaning for the moment in the modern time is that we live in a culture that's inoculated against it. And so in a time when you could stand up and say, I care about justice, I care about the poor, I care about the hungry, there was time where that would have been unique and the church would have been the place to do that. But now people say, I do all that and I'm free from 10 o'clock to 11.30 on Sunday mornings. Um, it's been so uh, pushed into there and this is a phrase that, that we have the kingdom without the king nowadays. And so what does it mean to go out into those places? Another example of this would be um, uh, 
political sort of marches. We go into sort of politics, and we think we'll be salt and light there, but what actually what happens is we often just adopt whatever is around us. We're just not very good at remaining in our culture. This is why well is the image. We go deeper into what we have. So the psalm, uh, Psalm 11 is what we read for this morning, and it proclaims at the beginning that the God is my refuge. And the friends of the psalmist proclaim to him, essentially, I, I got to get it open, but what are you, insane? Um, how then can you say to me, flee like a mountain to the, flee like a bird to the mountain? For they look, the wicked bend their bows, they set their arrows against the strings to shoot arrows from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The psalmist uh, lives in this world in which he is at least an enemy and being willing to be shot at and died. And his friends are telling him, how are you going to survive in that place? But he has found a refuge in the Lord, is what he proclaims, a place to stand still, a space to be. And the foundations, as they're crumbling around him, as I talk about foundations here, um, uh, uh, the foundations, I think, are important to name that might be in our world, where whether it be confusion around uh, sex and gender, um, I think that there's this re- uh, uh, racialization of society that could potentially backfire. Um, we have a world in high automation without questioning the goods. It's nice to be able to say to Alexa to put on Baby Shark, but there's a whole sort of automation sphere that we're moving into. Uh, Shoshana Zuboff, if you're really interested in a very nerd book, wrote this book called Surveillance Capitalism, also not a Christian at Harvard, in the ways in which the Big Brother is no longer really the government, but it's Google, Facebook, and this, that, and the other. And the ways in which they're able to manipulate us, which you read the book, you'll be terrified of the ways in which they're already able to sort of like bring things to our minds, track our feelings. I'm sure many of you saw the news story where a high school girl uh, got pregnant and Target sent her ads for pregnancy stuff before her parents knew. Um, that she was pregnant, that, that the algorithm was able to sort of process that fast enough. She got in big trouble. Um, uh, but these are sort of the world we live in. I think I had one more. Um, uh, the medical industrial complex, the military industrial complex, all these things seem to be part of the foundations that are being destroyed. And so the psalmist sees that these are destroying in the world, and what he does is he resides in God's holy place, in God's holy temple. And from there, the upright will see the face of God. The reason why I chose that psalm is because there's a book called The Spirit of Early Christian Thought, and it's about renewing, seeking the face of God. And so for us, it's about becoming these people who are renewed and seeking the face of God. Like the people in Joshua are not promised a new app at the edge of the promised land, a new way to be the church, a new way to be Israel, but to drawn back into the story that they were rescued from Egypt and they've been set on a new plane to be a new people in the world. And so in our efforts to pull ourselves back, antiquated and outdated as they might seem before we even get started, perhaps we can find in those patterns ways to renew ourselves to seek the face of God. Let us pray. God, in you we have found a refuge. Psalm 11 doesn't say that the psalmist won, that he was vindicated in his life 
that the arrows magically missed. But in knowing where he came from, the story of your temple and your journey with your people, being able to have a place to stand. The psalmist is able to say that he resides there, that he knows God is there, that in the end, judgment will happen. But in the meantime, he has a well and a place he can reside and be. Know that as he stays there, the upright will see your face. God, may you draw us as your people defines church into that mystery, into that path, into being a people who are renewed by your face. Can we repair all the foundations that are crumbling